Hey everyone, welcome to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci, and this podcast series is about demystifying women's hormonal issues. I am so glad for everyone to join me today. And if you are new to this podcast series, I welcome you. You're going to uh, be able to hear some incredible information that can change your life. And we have an extraordinary episode today where you're going to explore the world of food sensitivity. I have a wonderful guest. His name is James White. He is the CEO of KBMO Diagnostics Labs. They're up outside of Boston and they do some extraordinary food sensitivity testing. I've been working with them for four years and it has just opened doors in terms of ways that I've been able to help my clients. So why is food sensitivity so important? Did you know that by eliminating specific foods, you can actually impact your hormones, your mood, actually seasonal allergies, aches and pains, and unexplained symptoms that no one else has been able to address? And maybe you are having migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, sinus congestion, gas, bloat, or brain fog, and your dog's just can't figure out what's going on. And you're having skin rashes and you go to dermatologists and they keep giving you different types of cream and nothing is working. Nothing's working because no one is addressing the root cause for your symptoms. And maybe no practitioner ever mentioned that you could potentially be having a food sensitivity. And it doesn't have to be an out-and-out food allergy. And with James White, we're going to take a deep dive into differentiating between food sensitivity, food allergies, food intolerance, gluten sensitivity, and a lot more. So, you know, my feeling is I believe that when we lean into our health issues, our world changes. And I'll just share with you, I had a client, it was about four years ago, and I think it was one of the first KBMO tests that I had gotten back from the lab. And this young gal had terrible abdominal pain for years. No one could figure it out. And she had a sensitivity to coconut. And once we took coconut out of her diet, her cramping and abdominal pain completely disappeared. I never would have guessed that. And that's why I love doing a food sensitivity test. And we'll go into why, you know, eliminating certain foods in the diet can make a difference. But when you can be very specific, it's incredibly profound. So I've been a women's integrative health practitioner for a little over 25 years. I consider myself a women's health detective. I am curious. I am deeply curious about why women don't feel well. And I want to figure that out. I just don't want to give women a list of supplements and generic dietary guidelines. I want to get to the root of why women don't feel well. Maybe you don't feel well. That's why you're listening in today. And what motivates me as a practitioner and what motivates me to create these podcasts is to get to the core of why you're not feeling well. So frequently I will say to a new client, today's your birthday. Today's a new beginning because we are going to deconstruct and hone in on the root causes of why you're not experiencing the best version of you. We are genetically wired to thrive and the question where are you short-circuiting in your health? So I like to peel back the onion and to figure out why. And the biggest complaint that I, I see with many of my clients, the biggest one is energy. It's fatigue. People are tired. They're crashing during the day. They have brain fog. They're not sleeping at night. They have insomnia. I have clients that have had joint pain and with skin rashes and told by their doctors, it's not an autoimmune issue. And then with food sensitivity, I'm able to find out that they have a serious dairy and gluten sensitivity. I look at a food journal because it tells me a fabulous story about you. Sometimes that story tells me much more than intake forms because it gives me a bird's eye view of your world. And I say to clients, I just don't want you to clean up your food journal for me. I want to see exactly what you're eating. And I want to see everything in the times that you're eating. It's really funny because people have a tendency to clean up their food journal. And I look at it and I know this is not the way that they're usually eating on a regular basis. So your food journal tells me a lot about your hormones, your digestion, 
your blood sugar, your mood, and it also gives me an indication of potential food sensitivity. And I look at foods that can be potential triggers for a food sensitivity response that maybe you never considered because you thought they were healthy for you. I actually got an email from someone this morning, right before this podcast, and she said, I so miss my dairy and my broccoli. And she's having issues with these foods, and she's just been off them for a couple of weeks. So I said, be patient. We'll potentially introduce some later on, but it can really make a difference. Your gut health, the integrity of your microbiome, the integrity of your gut lining, which is one cell thick, defines your health. And this is, in my world, extraordinary because 70 to 80% of your immune response resides in your gut lining. So what if there are items in your kitchen cabinet and your fridge that you're consuming on a daily basis are the major culprits that are zapping your energy and contributing to an array of symptoms? Ladies, my sweet lovelies, I want to welcome you to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. Today's episode, Food Sensitivity, a Game Changer in Women's Health. And James, welcome onto the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. Thank you very much indeed, Meg. Uh, delighted to be here. And whatever insights I can give, I'd be delighted to see how I can share those with you and your, your, your listeners. So tell us about food sensitivity testing. Tell us about KBMO and their FIT test. That is their, the test that they use. And that, that's a test, I think it's 175 foods that yeah. check major food groups and additives. Yeah, so we have three panels. We have the 176, the 132, and the 22. And mm -hmm. uh, those numbers are associated with a number of foods, colorings, and additives that we measure. And obviously, it's very important that we measure colorings and additives because a bit uh, allied to uh, Meg's uh, food diary story there, you know, especially in lockdown or lock whatever we're all in right now, um, we're all eating more processed food. So unfortunately, what you see in those processed foods is a lot of colorings and additives. So we're making sure that we measure those so we can bring that out and highlight that. The other thing with those colorings and additives is they're also present in things like supplements as well as personal hygiene products. So again, it's, it's not just what you're hopefully only consuming three times a day that you might find these things in. It's in the supplements as well as some of the personal hygiene products. So those are the three panels we offer. And the other thing that I think certainly differentiates what we're doing is we're really looking at three different elements. So we look at food sensitivities, and we measure the IgG 1 through 4 to give people a good indication of what they're exposed to in terms of what they're currently consuming. Uh, and that's interesting, but it's an element of so what attached to that because, again, it's just telling you what you already would assume to know in terms of what you're consuming. So what we've done is we've overlaid that also looking at an inflammatory pathway. So rather than just looking at the your part of your immune system that measures exposure, we also look at a downstream part of your immune system, which measures inflammation. So the idea was, if we could not only look at what you're exposed to, but way more importantly, overlay that with what's causing you an inflammatory response, then that would help get, you know, as Meg was saying, to the real heart of uh, the kind of root cause of some of the issues that, that you, uh, the patients are seeing. So the idea is when you combine those two pathways together, it helps eliminate what we call in the industry false positives, but really for listeners, the, the key there is it really allows us to zero in on the key foods of interest because we're all human. And if even if Meg was to kind of give you a list of 30 foods, she's pretty persuasive, but that's a pretty <laughs> tough thing, kind of thing for anyone to kind of follow through on. Right. So what we've done is we've eliminated those foods that you're exposed to, but are not causing you an inflammatory response. So we can really zero in on the foods that, that you are consuming, but more importantly, are causing you that inflammatory response. And as Meg listed, the, the things that cause you inflammation are pretty much the underlying causes of, of most ailments that she'll see on a daily basis in terms of from the patients that she'll see. So again, inflammation is your body's way of, of, kind of kind of crying out for help. So the idea is if we can identify which foods those are then and zero in on them, Generally, you'll see five to 15 foods. So it's then you know, not overwhelming. And more importantly, it gives you the opportunity to really follow through and, and take control of your own um, health with the guidance of uh, having someone like Meg alongside you on that journey. So the idea is with our food sensitivity tests, we're looking at 
the exposure to foods with the IgG, which is interesting, but then overlaying that with the inflammatory pathway. And then the third element that we do, which I think, again, differentiates a little bit further, is we're also looking for leaky gut. And as Meg pointed mm-hmm. out, the mm-hmm. importance of gut health, the essence is we're all really trying to, you know, any provider should be a good one anyway, looking at how do we kind of heal your gut? Because healthy gut, healthy mind, healthy body, healthy pretty much everything. So the idea is we look at three elements on the test. We measure candida. If that's elevated, that's an indicator that your gut might be losing the good fight in terms of to make sure that the pH level is balanced. And because your body is such a brilliant thing, it's producing more of that candida. So again, that's a kind of indicator for Meg and you know, other good providers out there that are. Ah, that could be a sign that some kind of leaky gut going on. We would also say if there's more than 10 foods elevated, then that would be indicative of some kind of leaky gut going on yes. as well. So those two are kind of are pretty good ones. The third one is zonulin, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about that later Mm -hmm. on in the show, but that's another marker that we're uh, pioneering or we've been using for a couple of years and have been working with a gentleman called Dr. Alessio Fasano on that in terms of to come up with a unique way of measuring zonulin. The neat thing about our company is the science is really what leads us, and our technical founder is a gentleman called Dr. Brent Dorval. He's a PhD from MIT, brilliant scientist, one of his not insignificant claims to fame was he invented the first rapid HIV diagnostic. So again, everything we do is through kind of an infectious disease lens, as you might want to think of it. So again, in terms of the accuracy, the reproducibility, a good a good kind of indication of that is we run 15 what they call standards and controls per test. So we want to make sure that if we're sending some results back to Meg, that they're highly accurate and highly reproducible. And again, I think that's the neat thing about working with um, providers like Meg is that what we're doing is we're giving her an insight into you as an individual. So we all hear about personalized medicine and what does that really mean? This is a great in, in, you know, insight into that, i.e. we're taking a test, we're taking your blood, we're applying it to these 176, 132 or 22 wells. And it's a blood prick on your finger. It makes life yeah. so easy to send this kid in. Yeah. So again, you know, especially right now where some people are slightly nervous still about going in to see their provider, mm-hmm. we drop mm-hmm. ship that kit to you, the patient. There's a little YouTube video that you can watch which shows you how to do it. And as I always kind of slightly joke that if people are comfortable enough to uh, build a kitchen via YouTube, they should be comfortable enough to kind of prick their finger. So <laughs> we use that to kind of enable you to do that. And then there's a stamped address envelope. So again, Hopefully, uh, you guys can all find your mailboxes these days. Uh, I hope there's not too much snow, depending on where you are. And then that comes back to us, and then the results go back to the provider within seven to 10 days. Yeah, you're really good about that. And what I'd like to point out is that a lot of practitioners, and I think this is really wise, you know, they'll set up an elimination diet without doing food sensitivity testing. And the, the big foods that people, a lot of practitioners eliminate and even patients do on their own, they'll eliminate dairy, gluten, and maybe sugar. And they, I myself include in that list eggs, uh, dairy, sugar, eggs. uh, Oh my God, I can't even think of the things that I clues. There were basic foods. But the truth is, what if you're having somebody eliminate dairy and they don't have an issue with dairy? And maybe it's the gluten and the eggs, right? Or I even find maybe I'm jumping the gun here because I love the work of Dr. Fasano. He, to me, is like the most incredible gastroenterologist that has done such deep work in setting the guidelines for celiac testing and the one to discover zonulin. But I really feel that gluten or wheat sensitivity is one of those foods, even if it doesn't show up in the test I find that sometimes just keeping people off of that makes a big difference. But getting back to KBMO testing, it takes the guesswork out of what I need to eliminate in someone's diet. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was going to say the other point that you were just kind of getting to, alluding to, Mm -hmm. I think, with those elimination diets that people put on, is it's pretty tough, as you say, to take all those things off straight off the bat. And I think most of us, rightly or wrongly, are pretty inquisitive now. And so I think we push back and say, why am I having to take all these things off? And so I think it then really raises a real tough question around compliance, because like, if I'm mm-hmm. taking off all these things, you know, we've still got our daily lives to go about. You know, some days are good, some days aren't so good. And so, you know, we'll reach for that sugar or that glass of wine, whatever it might be. Right. And so, you know, what I think a lot of the uh, patients really like is that 
it is personalized to them. And what we do is we provide some compliance tools that really help. And I think, you mm-hmm. know, within that, we have an app um, that the patients really love, which gives them their results on there and a little bit of additional information on each of the foods that we're eliminating plus mm-hmm. their full results. So it gives them a way of, of having that information. And again, we all need that information to bit a kind of check on. And the key is I think everyone these days or a lot of people will have their smartphone pretty much glued to them. So again, if your results are on there and a little bit of information on each of the foods that you have to avoid, that then helps in terms of if you're grocery shopping, you've got that. If you're eating out for dinner, you've got it. Yeah. And again, a lot of people love to share it with their friends and family as well, because again, it becomes a bit of a badge of pride in some respects that, you know, you've actually gone and done this. You've identified on an individualized basis which foods you should eliminate and you're feeling better. So why wouldn't you want to share that information with friends and family? Because, you know, you've taken control of your own healthcare, which is, uh, you know, that's a real blessing and a real skill. And, and uh, you know, I wish all, more people would be doing that for sure. So let's talk about differentiating food sensitivity, food allergy, because that's an issue with clients and food intolerance. So many times I'll say to my, my clients, have you had, they'll say to me, oh, my doc has done a food allergy testing. I don't have an issue with any of these foods. And I said, you don't have to have that out and out allergy to have a serious response. You can still have a serious response in a way that you would even have with celiac. And I think a lot of people don't realize that a food sensitivity response is not just gas and bloat. It's brain fog. It's depression. It's anxiety. Yeah, it's, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, yeah. as you say, lots of people say, well, I've done an allergy test mm-hmm. and this is different. And, and the kind of, the, I guess the kind of the highlights is the way I put it with allergy versus sensitivity is that allergy is an instant response. So again, it's pretty, right. pretty straightforward for all of us to work out. You know, I've had a prophylactic shock on the back of what I've just consumed. I know what I've just consumed because, you know, that was a matter of you know minutes ago. With And it's generally a pretty pretty severe response. With food sensitivity, what makes it much more complicated is that what you ingest can have an impact up to 72 hours after yeah, you've ingested it. Three days later, yeah. Exactly. So that makes it really complicated. I mean, you know, it used to be in the old days um, prior to all these lockdowns that we'd, you'd say, well, I would, I'm not sure even where I was three days ago. Unfortunately, <laughs> we all know where we were three days ago now, but we certainly don't know what we've probably eaten in that three-day period that may well have caused the symptom that they're presenting with. So that's why I think this is such a really kind of a a fruitful area for providers to kind of test is because it's helping, you know, to your absolute phrase there, it's it's removing the guesswork because it's tough. Again, depending on how reliable or, or accurate some of those food diaries might have been, you know, the reality is if you're testing for that, you know, food sensitivity, it's that delayed nature which makes it much more complex. And some of the symptoms, they may not be life-threatening, but they're really debilitating in a different way. So again, if you've got you know, bad gastroenterology issues, then that, that's a problem. You know, if you've got migraines, if you've got you know, arthritis, all of these things, again, the underlying cause of them is inflammation. And that's where this test is different. It's identifying that inflammation. And for a lot of these women that are listening, it could be contributing to you having severe menstrual cramps breast tenderness, a lot of PMS symptoms, a lot of hormonal issues. It can be amplifying lupus. So food sensitivity is a big part of the picture. And I think what's also part of the picture is that, as you said, James, a little earlier, with food sensitivity, it's a marker for inflammation. So with food sensitivity, we have to take a look at if there's an inflammatory response in the body, is this food sensitivity contributing to creating a leaky gut, right? Sure, sure. And, you know, there's this, this dance with health. It's, you know, has the, the microbiome, the dysbiosis, has the microbiome been compromised in some way? And I want to go into what some of those factors would be. Is your microbiome compromised where you have an overgrowth of bad bacteria? You don't have enough good bacteria. You're eating foods that continuously make this, create this inflammatory response in the body that could be impacting uh, the lining, creating a leaky gut. And then you have these, this inflammatory response spewing out in the system. So what I like about food sensitivity testing, and I, I want to compare it to some other ones that are out there because there's so many tests that people are doing online that are a bit scary. I couple this myself with a GI map test. And what I find interesting is like, for example, 
I did a GI map test, which maps out the bacteria in the gut, and I, it's a really important tool. But I'll see candida on the food sensitivity test, and then I'll see how it's showing up in the uh, stool test, and it kind of supports one another. So when you take foods out of a diet and at the same time clean up the gut, suddenly what happens over months is that a lot of these foods that people are really reacting to, and you know this, James, they're not having a response anymore. Or you reintroduce these foods and people realize, you know what, I can't eat eggs, I don't feel well. And they can actually notice the symptom a lot faster. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's not only that when they eliminate that food, they can reintroduce it. And I think that's mm -hmm. another important differentiator there. It's like, you know, it's you can eliminate it, you can heal the gut, and then you may well be able to tolerate it. Or, mm -hmm. as Meg rightly points out, yes, I'm, I'm the same with eggs. I recognize that's one food that, you know, was elevated. You know, I, I was good for my eight months, or whatever it is. Like when I looked to reintroduce some of these foods, that was one that remained a trigger. And so you can you can identify it. You can become much more in tune with your body by eliminating those foods, cleaning up your gut. And again, you know, that's a great way of doing it in terms of you, know, you look at the bacteria plus the sensitivities to try and really get again to that root cause of what might be getting to it. And then as an individual, you become way more in tune with, you know, which foods are causing some of those issues. And you've removed that guesswork, as Meg was saying, of what is it in that 72 hours period that you might have been eating, which is causing you those symptoms that you're presenting with. You know, it's funny, James, I look at food sensitivity and I almost look at it as being the canary in the coal mine. Like it's telling us, why am I reacting to peas? Or, you know, why am I reacting to broccoli? And it's letting us know that there's something amiss in the microbiome. So I feel that contributing factors to food sensitivity is the standard American diet. It lacks variety. And also, as you mentioned, you know, processed foods have hidden additives, artificial dyes, and that, you know, those are the mysterious stuff that, that really can trigger a food sensitivity or a, a symptom in the body. Hidden gluten, and I want to go into, you know, the zonulin and, and gluten in a, in a while, but there's hidden gluten in products. I don't even mention that there's gluten in the ingredients, and that can be really tricky for people. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's amazing where it comes up. I mean, obviously, sandwich meats is one of them, which is like, how mm -hmm. on earth would you assume that that would be in a, in, in a meat? But it, it's used. And again, you, know, with, you look at you know, people thinking they're doing the right thing. I hate to pick on Subway, but there was the example where they were <laughs> using okay. a product to kind of obviously extend the shelf life that was used as, uh, uh, it was banned in Europe. Uh, in Asia, they were making uh, yoga mats out of it. And here in the good old USA, it was FDA approved. So again, it's one of those things that you've got different products being and, and process elements being used in the food. So it, it's trying to highlight where possible, you know, trying to read those ingredients to make sure you've got a better understanding of what's in there to give you an opportunity. And that's why we look at those colorings and additives as well, because that gives you an opportunity of going, ah, I wonder what is that? And, you know, for example, the other good one was red dyes. After World War II, the Germans used that red dye to color plastics. And they had no concept that here we are, you know, however long, 75 years later, we're now using some of those, that red dye in foods and pastries and things. So again, that's where I think it's been slightly frightening that, you know, we assume that we're always progressing forward. I think food may be an element that we're almost regressing versus, versus progressing. So um, it's important for people to look at that. And what's sad is that genetically modified foods, which started being introduced more in the 1990s and also the use of glyphosate and that, which is Roundup, it's a pesticide. And what started happening after the 90s is that food allergies just started going through the roof and food sensitivity. I think it was the U.S. ranks right now seven out of almost 200 countries worldwide with cancer rates that have been declared glyphosate and associated an ingredient used in genetically modified crops. It is a probable carcinogen. And I wish I remember exactly where I got this from, this quote, but Pesticides are one of the contributing factors to leaky gut and causing a lot of health issues. And a, a, one woman, have you ever heard of Robin O'Brien? Yeah. Yeah. She's like the, the Aaron Brockovich 
of uh, the food industry. And she gave an incredible talk in 2011, and I would encourage people to listen to it. But yeah, since the 90s, herbicides have doubled in the United States. We are using presently over 100 billion pounds in the US. I can't even fathom that amount. And this, again, coinciding with the increase in food allergies, celiac, and food sensitivity. That's a big part of the picture, and that's why I encourage people, as much as they can, please organic, at the very least, non-GMO foods. A kind of anecdote to that, we were, uh, I remember, um, as you may recognize, I may, I may not necessarily be from uh, downtown Boston with my crazy accent here. Oh, but, I thought you were um, from the Bronx. Exactly. So <laughs> w- when my wife and I first moved over to the US, it was about 15 years ago, she sent me to the local supermarket to get some chicken breasts. And so I came back and I said, I hope the kids are locked away. And I said, and she said, well, why is that? And she said, well, the si- if, if that chicken is the size of the, the if this is the breast of that chicken, it's going to be <laughs> eating the kids and, and, uh, above everything else. So again, I think the amount... Amount of water yeah. and stuff like that gets in, and other you know water is probably the nicest thing that got inve- into, injected into that chicken breast. But again, to your point, it's amazing what has been allowed to happen uh, in terms of. I think the good news is there's definitely like anything in life, there's a pendulum, and there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot more interest now in people. Again, 15 years ago, if I was looking for the organic aisle, I would still probably have been in that supermarket. So nowadays, obviously, it's a lot it's changed dramatically. And I think, you know, people are, sh- are paying a lot more attention uh, of making sure the quality of their food that they're quality. eating is, is going up. And so we can't obviously speak to necessarily the quantity every time, but certainly the quality of everyone's food is, is I think people are understanding, you know, either, I think the phrase someone used to me one day was, you know, pay now or pay later. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely a worthwhile investment in terms of being very mindful about the, uh, the choices you're making in terms of uh, organic foods, um, all the way through across from obviously meat, obviously, but uh, in other forms as well. And I also think uh, being in the 10 month of COVID, I mean, during this period, I think this is the first time in a few generations that people are cooking at home. Yep. So you can be more in control of what you're eating and what your and what your family is eating and you can make healthier choices. And if you can't afford organic then you can get, you know, rinses or you can at the very least, you know, rinse your vegetables to get off some of those pesticides. There's much that people can do. And I know we have to be realistic with people's budgets, but at the very least, when it comes to meat and when it comes to fish, to look at cold water fish and as opposed to farm raised and to be looking at not eating meats that are injected with hormones you know, looking at more pastured and grass-fed. I think we can really be mindful in this area and little by little make changes. And I actually see the price of grass-fed and pastured meat uh, going down. And that's an important thing. So I don't want people to avoid eating vegetables, but I just want them to be really mindful in how they're shopping. And I want to talk about I don't know. There's a few things we can. Do you want to talk about the gluten picture and uh, the zonulin, or do you want to go into the different types of testing that are out there for the lay person that is? I, I mean, I've had people come in with food sensitivity testing that they've done on Amazon, and it's just this nightmare of like 50,000 foods, and I can't even make heads or tails of what they're actually having a sensitivity to. So maybe we can hit that first. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that's a good point. And, and uh, you know, we've, ch- as an organization, chosen not to go direct to consumer because we, we see, although food sensitivity is an important element, it's an element. It's like, you know, buying a third of a jigsaw, uh, not really that helpful on its own. But when you then, you know, put that together with a good provider and some good supplementation you know, and an overall guide, then I think it can be really helpful. And so I think our, our, our view is just because you can put it online, you don't necessarily should always sell it online. And our view is, you know, we've, we've chosen to say that information in the hands of a good provider will give you a much better opportunity to really understand what's going on. We've definitely tried to simplify the results as much as possible. Although, as I say, we've got some very bright individuals like Dr. Dorval working with us in terms of on constantly developing new products but the idea was to say let's put it in the hands of a good provider and then you can you can have an honest discussion with that provider and kind of work through that at the same time the other point as well is a lot of the tests online are igg only so as i mentioned up front 
that's the bit which is just measuring the exposure to food. So that's when you get these crazy 30, 40, 50 um, foods coming back saying, I have to eliminate those. As I say, that normally will only cause one effect on any patient is that's their bottom lip starts wobbling and trembling as they go, well, what can I eat now? And it's, you know, it's, it's the old one of, you know, you're back to bread and water, oops, no bread. So the idea is let's not panic people into kind of saying, well, you know, what can I eat now? Let's move them forward in a, in a much more, you know, sensible way, which says, let's not just look at what they're exposed to. Let's look at what they're exposed to. But way more importantly, let's overlay what's causing that inflammatory uh, response as well. And what we found is when you combine those, you then zero in on the key foods of interest. So you're getting to that five to 15, which then when you go and see a provider with that information, that's a kind of more of an aha moment versus like an oh no moment, which is what you get, you know, a deep sense of, oh God, I spent all this money and I've got 30 foods which I can't eat. And oh my gosh, but on top of that, they're the, all the foods I eat anyway. So it's it's one of the problems I think with some of these online offerings is is that, is that, you know, they haven't necessarily taken it to the next level and and then the next level above that, which is A, let's look at the inflammatory response, but more importantly, let's get the input of a good provider who can then help guide you in terms of, okay, so what supplements maybe would be helpful to look at as well and so for example with our test if we if we can clearly identify that you've got some kind of leaky gut going on making it great i've got some great gut healing protocols we can put that in conjunction with the provider's input and the test results you then i can guarantee you'll have a really really good outcome and so i think that's the difference here is in my mind absolutely you can go and get a test done but like all things in life not all things are made equally and so our view is you're much better taking that test, which is you know manufactured in FDA manufactured facility. It's been it's patented. It's developed by Dr. Brent Dorval. We control all the food, so we can we can tell you where they're from. In fact, I can tell you where the fish were even caught. So you know we can go all the way back to kind of making sure we have that level of traceability on the testing to make sure that the test result that Meg has or that you bring to Meg. You know, once you guys start working together, is something that becomes a, a real tool and, and something that will be very beneficial moving forward versus one that you'll open up and just really scratch your head and go, I'm not really sure what that's helped me with. Well, I also feel that what is part of this sensitivity picture, and I think it's important to bring up, is that most people eat the same foods every day. So that's what I look, I see in a journal, it's like, wow, over the past four days, You've had chicken about eight times, or you're eating sweet potatoes at two meals over the you know over a three day period, six meals, and you're eating the same food. So what this does, what I try to have people let's rotate your proteins, let's rotate the vegetables in your diet, and that makes a big difference because eating the same foods every day. And some of these foods are great foods, but we start developing a sensitivity and we start developing antibodies for that. So, and I'm guilty of it like everybody else. I have to look at my, what I'm eating for the week and I'm like, am I eating the same thing? Am I getting enough diversity in? Am I having the same thing for lunch and dinner and, and making sure that, that I have an array of fruits and vegetables and different types of protein and, and so on. That makes a really, really big difference. And I will share I have seen in my practice by eliminating certain foods in people's diets, and it gets me a little choked up, I've had clients that have had the worst anxiety and depression. And when they finally cut out dairy and gluten, everything changed. And then I worked on cleaning up the gut, and it's profound. When somebody can get off Adderall and get off an antidepressant, and get off birth control because they've been having PMS. And suddenly they get to see a clean version of who they really are. And those symptoms don't come back. To me, I, I feel so blessed that I can do this work. And food sensitivity in my world, that is a huge, I mean, you see it every, I'm always, you know, I'm always having clients getting tested because it's an important, valuable piece of information. I agree. I mean, that's one of the joys of the job we do is, is actually, you know, hearing the stories like Meg just said, you know, we're fortunate now we have, you know, over 5,000 providers here in the U S running the test. We have lab partnerships in Mexico, Brazil, 
we've got labs in Shanghai, Beijing, and not unsurprisingly, as you, as you may have picked up, one in London as well. So <laughs> the idea is, you know, this is a big problem all around the world. And as I say, it's, it's one that the nice thing, and I think why a lot of patients really kind of kind of get behind this kind of testing is you don't have to be a PhD to understand egg, no. milk, and dairy. It's something that you can take control of. So again, it's not uh, a frightening thing like, you know, someone says, well, your triglycerides are 500. Should I be happy? Should I be sad? I think when you see these reports, they're very simple to, you know, work out. If it's green, it's good. If it's red, it's bad. Um, and I think it's that's the simplicity of what we've tried to do here. It's on a topic that we all understand as individuals because we're all consuming at least three times a day. So we understand food. So again, I think because we've tried to demystify it, it then enables patients to really take control and move forward themselves. I mean, but with a good guide on, on any journey, that's always a good way of going. So I think that's our approach has been come up with the best possible test available and then work with the best providers. And then that combination, I think, is where you know, we hear the stories that we do from people like Meg in terms of how well patients are coming uh, yeah, are improving. We're a small part of that jigsaw, but we want to make sure that, you know, like anything in life, that it's a, there's a multiplier effect by, of people using the test by working with the right types of people that understand them and can help guide them in terms of moving forward. To that end, Meg was talking about it earlier, we've developed this zonulin test. And zonulin, for, for those of you, and I'll, I'll uh, openly admit I was one of them up until a few years ago, had no clue what that was. But it's really a protein that helps dictate the performance of the tight junction. So if you think of the tight junctions in your st stomach, they kind of open and close. If you have elevated um, zonulin, then that means that they're not performing, you know, to the optimum amount. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think another way, if you look at the GI tract and yep. if you look at it as these gates, these multiple gates that open and close, but what happens with, uh, with zonulin when there's a high presence of that, the gates stay open. So your gut lining starts looking like a really open piece of cheesecloth. I'm exaggerating, yep. but you have, that is called a leaky gut. And Dr. Fasano in my world is a rock star because this brilliant gastroenterologist discovered zonulin, I think, what, back in 2012, 2000? And Even further. I think it's about 20 10? years ago now. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. when I stir. All right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the, yeah. you know, a lot of the PubMed reports were, yeah. were coming up back around 10 years. Anyway, so continue. I just wanted to create a little yeah, yeah. clarity and create yeah. that visual for people. Exactly. But And so normally when you kind of get given the news, well, I've got an elevated whatever, it's like, oh, God, here I go. I'm, they're going to put me on some drug and, and, and uh, life's going to be miserable. The cool thing about zonulin, it's it's reversible. So mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. if you then listen to the advice, you eliminate the food, probably go on some kind of gut healing protocol, then the likelihood is that you can see an improvement. So that's the other nice thing about it from a consumer standpoint. This isn't, you know, this isn't, a, oh, God, here I go. They're going to put me on some damn drug again. This is one that goes, okay. I can take control again. And that's what this is about. How do we give you something that goes, okay, good news, bad news. Good news, you know, bad news is it's a little bit elevated. Good news is here's the things you can do to fix that. And so that's, you know, I think a really nice thing about it. It's also, you know, back to Meg's comment about the canary in the comment, it's also a bit of a marker for overall health as well. So there's been yes. an explosion yes. of papers in terms of talking about links of elevated zonulin, yes, with leaky gut, but many other autoimmune diseases and other things as well. So it's worth measuring to see, you know, what's the overall health. And again, what we tell our providers is if that's elevated, bear that in mind that there could be other things going on as well as just the leaky gut. So, Sorry, Meg, I interrupted you. No, I, I just thought of this. It's some of the order. It's also, isn't it associated with type 1 diabetes? Yep. So isn't it interesting to think, wow, type 1 diabetes is the, the zonulin issue, is that a precursor or, or is the type 1 diabetes causing this zonulin? But we're seeing, again, with a lot of autoimmune issues, this increase in, in zonulin and particularly in celiac. And again, I just want to reiterate and reinforce, our bodies are designed to thrive and you can help your gut heal, whether you're having you know, elevated levels of zonulin where your, your gut lining looks like a piece of cheesecloth, or whether you have celiac and the villi in the small intestine looks like a shaved down shag carpet due to gluten, you can heal that. You just have to 
figure out, again, working with the right practitioner, eliminating the foods, and then coupling that with what other, you know, macro, micronutrients and what other proper supplementation that you need to heal the gut. And I think it's, yeah, I just wanted to... Yeah, and, and the, the nice thing if you if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to uh, Dr. Fasano talk, he is um, to Meg's point a complete rock star, and so again, really well worth any of his talks kind of listening to. But we've been working with him probably for the last two or three years, and it's uh, talking of rock stars. I've got him and Dr. Dorval, so I've got the HIV oh, man boy. plus uh, Dr. Fasano on this, and so yeah, as I say, it's uh, it's the rock stars of this area kind of working together to come up with a, a new zonulin test, which is looking at the the proteins versus the antibodies. And according to Dr. Fasano, his belief is that will mean there'll be a much tighter link with symptoms linked with that elevated zonulin. So uh, it's been a, a, a two-year journey on that, and the guys are very close to completion. So uh, we're very excited that uh, when that comes out, um, we will be including that on each of the panels because, again, we believe as an organization it's so important that you help the patient heal the gut so rather than just saying that sounds like a great thing to say let's give the providers another tool that aids them to do that so like i say so you had the exposure to the foods you've got the inflammation caused by the foods and then the third kind of leg of the stool as it were is looking at the zonulin the candida and more than 10 foods elevated so again we're trying to give as much information to the provider and again so that's why we see it important to work with providers because there's quite a lot of information going on there but not if you're a you know if you're a provider to kind of help you know explain and understand what some of these things may mean as they interpret those results on your behalf. And some of you may not like Dr. Fasano after this statement, but it is a fact: gluten, whether you have celiac or not, makes your gut leaky. No one digests gluten, so it elevates zonulin. Every single time you have a piece of bread or you're having gluten during the day, whether or not a sensitivity for this shows up on the KBMO test, it causes this little tear in the lining. And that lining will heal maybe in three to five days. But in my world, if you're doing that every day, you're compromising your gut lining. And I found that you know anyone I'm treating with an autoimmune issue I take them off gluten. And I've found even if it doesn't show up on the food sensitivity testing, I really encourage people to minimize or cut it out of their world. And I don't know how you feel about that. Seeing that gluten show up in on people's food sensitivity, and it shows up a lot, is that I usually encourage people, this is the food that you want to eliminate from your world. And as much as possible, keep it out of your diet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and as I say, the big three, as we call them in our world, are kind of egg, milk, and wheat. Yeah. So again, those yeah. are the big three. So they're probably 70% uh, of the time we'll see that in patients. Yes. So yeah. uh, again, not always the three or one, one at a time, but um, they're the most prevalent, certainly in terms of frequency so, of foods so that come up. Why do we see so much like sweet potato and orange squash? Yeah, I mean, I think it, sometimes it's, it's that exposure element. And then I think another time, you know, it, it's... It's, it's, it, yeah, it, exactly. It could be something that's actually included in them. So I think that's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's interesting, as you say. We we cover a lot of those squashes, and a lot more people are eating that, which is a great thing. Mm-hmm. So again, it could be sometimes, as you, as you were describing, your diet and to the people's overexposure to some of these foods as well. But it may well be, you know, that the glyphosate may be coming through on some of those as well, although they were organically sourced. I'd like to think that yeah, you know, all our foods are definitely organically sourced. So it may not be glyphosate, but who knows? That's a good point, though. I have had clients that have celiac and their tests come back and they see no gluten and they're like, I don't understand. Why am I not seeing a sensitivity here? Because they said, you don't have a sensitivity. You have an out and out autoimmune issue. So do you want to talk about that a little? I think the point that you raised, it's sometimes it's, it's, it's down to the exposure as well. So if you're not being exposed to something, then that, that will, you know, it won't necessarily trigger it because what we're trying to test you for is what are the foods you're currently consuming that are causing you the symptoms that you're presenting to the provider with? So again, we're not trying to get you to kind of introduce things to your diet that you've never had before or, you know, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to be tested on the Fit 176. I've got to consume all 176 foods before I can run the test. Yeah. So the idea is we're trying to test you for what it is in your current diet, but then as I say, that overlay of, okay, so what are you exposed to? But more importantly, 
what amongst those are causing you that inflammatory response. And so that's really the real target in terms of with the testing. So I have a question. I have a client and she scored highest for artichokes. And I'm like, do you eat artichokes? She's like, no. So what is, and I see that like really quirky stuff showing up. And I'm like, is this in your diet? You know, I look at, well, you know. I mean, artichokes are a good one. Sometimes you'll find that in a, that's a, an ingredient in some supplements. So yes, again, back, right. to, back to that point, oh, it's, it's, you know, you're looking at things where could be in a, a skin product. So something's come up through there, all the supplements or what they're eating. The other thing I would say, once if you say, well, it's definitely not any of those things, but artichoke, I would expect it to be in. Um, we had someone the other day who was a vegetarian, but they were on collagen. And so they came up for turkey and chicken and duck. And wow. so it was, when they looked at what was in the collagen, that was the thing that was causing it. So again, it's being, to your point about your, your, de- your detective role, working out what are they really consuming. And it's not what's necessarily on their plate. It could also be from a supplement standpoint as well. But I also would look at, if they're getting such a reaction, then I would be looking at the integrity of the gut. Yeah. I'd be looking yeah, at absolutely. the microbiome. Yeah. I'd yeah. be like, you're, if you're reacting sure. to all these things, and I know we mentioned, and that again, that's another one, like you shouldn't be reacting to these foods. So we have yeah. to look at the integrity of the commensal, you know, bacteria. And we, you know, yep. is there, um, you know, where's your leakiness? Is there overgrowth of bacteria? And that's why I cannot separate uh, food sensitivity testing without really doing a deeper dive into looking at the GI mapping. And I think that is really, really uh, crucial. And without going into it, and there are different labs that do different types of GI mapping. And I use a lab that that I really trust. And like you, is very specific in yeah. what they do to look for those inflammatory markers because yeah. it, it creates a different type of story. So, you know, I didn't ask you this. What made you decide to create KBMO? So that's a good question. I we mean, because it's um, kind of odd. Like, yeah. I think I'm going to develop a lab that does food sensitivity yeah. testing. So it was previously I'd, I'd run um, genetic companies. Um, so we mm-hmm. we were the, one of the first companies to develop a cystic fibrosis test that we took through the oh, FDA. Wow. We then took the first warfarin, so the 2C19 test through the FDA as well. Um, so on the kind of molecular and genetic side. And so that kind of pricked my interest in, I guess, personalized medicine in terms of specific results. We were probably slightly ahead of the curve in terms of looking at that stuff, just from the FDA kind of being a little bit frightened of the concept of being that personalized that quickly in terms of drugs. But that's now changed, obviously, in terms of you see a lot of diagnostics which are linked with pharmaceuticals now to try and work out, you know, again, if we can help save money and get people on the right drug in terms of certainly for cardiovascular disease, that's been helpful. So we were looking at some of those molecular testing areas. Then I got involved in cardiovascular testing as well and kind of looked at it and went, it's really interesting. We've got here, you know, a cardiologist saying, eat less, exercise more. Hmm, All right. So the exercise more thing seems to be taken care of. But when I look at the food side, there wasn't really any good way of individualized testing. So I started looking around and came across, uh, was introduced to Dr. Dorval, who'd just been, you know, set up the test. At that point, they had, uh, we had five providers using the test. There's now, as I said, over 5,000 here in the US, probably the same all around the world. So in the last eight, nine years, we've been, we've had a kind of pretty dramatic growth as we've gone out and told the story. So it was one of those things where I saw that there was a, felt like a gap between, you know, how do you get people that individualized information around their diet and a test that would probably measure that in an effective way that removed those false positives we talked about in terms of the exposure, Mm -hmm. but was based on some solid science. Because again, you know, just because on the- Science is everything. Yeah. The the idea was let's underpin it with some good science. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky to have have, uh, met Dr. Dorval. And so again, the idea was let's take that and then move forward with that rather than say, you know, so it fitted really a kind of the next piece I was trying to look for in terms of areas that were lacking in terms of from a testing standpoint. And then when I discovered Dr. Dorval as well, I thought, well, this is great. This is a perfect kind of combination to say, let's get that out to the world, but with a, an improved version, everyone was running IgG testing, 
there was generally a level of dissatisfaction about that because it was of all these false positives or they weren't reproducible. So to find someone who had that infectious disease background about making sure tests was highly accurate and highly reproducible and to have this extra twist of, which made so much sense to me of saying, okay, let's look at what you're exposed to, but more importantly, what's causing you inflammation. Mm. And as you know, that inflammation is pretty much underpinning every symptom that you see on a daily basis. Inflammation is yeah. is the precursor to any disease, yeah. any disease. And that is what you're, uh, and I just want to say this because that is what we as practitioners, that's what your lab is pointing at, you know, uh, KBMO is pointing out and other labs. How do we turn the fire off? Yeah, exactly. Right? So for me, it felt like, well, here's, here's an opportunity to take an area that's probably slightly underserved when you look at, you know, food sensitivity testing, because it was, you know, that level of dissatisfaction gives something that's based on really robust science to give people an opportunity mm -hmm. to kind of help themselves and give the providers the kind of t another tool, which would be helpful. And then I think, you know, building on that now that we've got so many people happy running it was kind of, you know, branching out to the number of tests or foods that we were measuring. And then on top of that, now I think you're looking at the zonulin and now we're also looking at a more rapid testing as well, which will give providers some answers in the office for things like the egg, wheat, and dairy within 10 minutes. So the idea wow. is let's stick to our knitting about food sensitivity and what we know well. And, you know, let's take some of the uh, advantage of the brilliance of Dr. Dorval and look at how can we develop other elements within food sensitivity and then always partner with the right types of people. So when we came out with our Fit 176, for example, there was over 150 providers inputted into that. So the idea is it's all very well having good science, but you've got to get out there and talk to people to find out how do we best apply that? Right. What's the missing link, as it were, to kind of give them those tools? So we've had a, a good response from people in terms of, and again, we've been very helpful or very relaxed about looking at how do we adapt and change things to make it work better in terms of for what providers are looking for and you know, ultimately the patients in terms of you know the, the results that we get them. Yeah, I think what it really boils down to, we just want to help people feel good. Yeah, exactly. We want exactly. people to feel yeah. healthy. Yeah. We want people to experience an abundance of energy. And yeah. you know, and, and frankly, just be, it's fun yeah. for me, you know, if we're in Mexico, Brazil, you know, New Zealand, Australia, wherever mm -hmm. I am in the world, we've got providers telling us these stories where you know yeah. we're making people feel better, and you know they have more energy. You know they we've cleared you know migraines or it's you know skin issues and or so brain fog, and, or brain fog, fatigue, and so it goes on yeah. and on. So it, yeah. it's a really neat thing in terms of being able to kind of you know, and it's for me, you know, we work with the one percent of nutritionists and providers who I recognize that food is an important element of of what makes us all tick, and so that's the cool thing. Food is the foundation yeah. of one's hormones. So yeah. when people say to me, my hormones are out of balance, I'm like, mm, let's take a look at what you're eating. Yeah. James, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Hormone Lifestyle Zone today. We had my pleasure. technical glitches, but we got to figure it out. You are such a love. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank all our listeners. And I look forward to meeting up with you again. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And until I see you again, rotate your foods, eat good veggies, and take good care. Be well.